Have I pressed the right button? All right. Now, I want you to know that when you live close to someone or closer than ordinarily is the case, they see your warts and blemishes even more closely than the people who can see them anyway. Now, Andy Peterson is a recovering psychologist because (laughs) nobody recovers anymore, you see. Yes. He says recovered, but he's merely self-deluded. <laughs> and so Andy has decided, oh, I have to tell you something else about professionals, that when they can't fix something, they give it a fancy name. That's one of the ways you can tell a professional. And the more incapable he is of fixing it, the fancier the name. And so nobody's been able to fix my time and space problems, so I have been now given by Andy a very clever name to help me coexist with my deficiency. That stands for spatial temporal disorder. I have a disorder. (laughs) And Andy isn't going to fix it. He's just going to label it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let Joe tell us what else it means. That's right. (laughs) And it also stands in Presbytery for slithery theological debating. Now, as one who has spatial temporal disorder, my wife has informed me something she's been informing me of for years. She hasn't fixed it either, but she still informs me. And that is that my outlines are hard to follow. And I don't try to make it that way. It just seems to come out that way. And what I'm going to try to do today is make an extraordinary effort. Thank you. Extraordinarily heroic effort to follow my outline. Yes. Congregation 1, RBN (laughs) 0. And where's my timekeeper who's going? Now, you said you were going to sit over here. Oh, in case you have to go. (laughs) Oh. I see that for bladder or for worse, we have to make these concessions. I think we better pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, please help us. I should say more accurately, help me, please, Lord, to use the time well and not to meander too many times into uh, sidetracks and to uh, press on uh, smartly uh, in the uh, effort that we're here undertaking to um, grasp and to wrestle with these truths 
Lord, I thank you for the wonderful time we're able to have together in the fellowship in Jesus Christ and how sweet that is. And I thank you for the great hymns that you permitted us to sing this morning, uh, and especially the last several were uh, so uh, precious an opportunity, O oh God, to worship you together and to proclaim your excellencies. We thank you for the excellencies of your word and for the gracious work of your spirit in applying the word and explaining it and teaching it to us. And so, Father, we pray that in these uh, two hours together, uh, we will honor you even as we ask you to teach us and to make us wiser. We ask all of this, praying that not only when we are wiser, but that we will be more submissive and humble. All in Jesus' name, amen. There were a few tidbits I wanted to tie together from yesterday, and one of them was, uh, if you remember one of our beginning premises that I stated and endeavored to illustrate in a number of ways, is how the visible church has been influenced by secular thinking and the shift from a God-centered world and life view and a God-centered understanding uh, of truth to a man-centered one. And I suspect uh, that most of you have somewhere heard and maybe have even sung uh, that hymn by Ackley, uh, You Ask Me How I Know He Lives, is the chorus. And you remember what the answer to that is? He lives within my heart. Yeah. Now, that should be true of the Christian, of course, but that isn't how we should know he lives. We should know he lives because the Scripture objectively declares that he lives. And I want to take you, because we're going to be using this text later on today, to Hebrews 11 to illustrate yet another example of this, and so I hope we can correct it as well as use it as an illustration. To Hebrews 11, and if you have a King James Bible, that first verse probably will be translated, unless it's a somewhat unusual KJV. It will be a translated, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, we use the word substance generally to mean some kind of objective reality. Uh, for instance, if you teach a course in math, if it's substantive, you've got to teach some math. See, that's real basic. Uh, you don't just teach feelings about math, you have to teach math. And evidence is generally considered to be clues or indicators or pieces of information that reflect some reality. And so powerful is that word evidence that we know, for instance, in law that evidences are crucial to the establishment of cases in the court system, even in judicially corrupt court systems. Evidence is so singular that, in fact, you can't generally establish a case, a winnable case, if there isn't sufficient evidence. Evidence is so crucial an element in human existence that even in the terrible uh, purge trials in communist Russia in the 30s that enormous effort 
and time was spent in producing evidence for the spurious charges and, of course, the illegitimate convictions. And uh, I can remember some years ago at Monterey reading through communist propaganda that had been translated, propaganda of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, and one of the things that they did is spend enormous effort trying to establish sufficient evidence that there was indeed righteousness in the choices and behavior of the Communist Party and the government of the Soviet Union. And yet if you look and you have a more modern translation, you will see that the translation now generally reads, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now if you think about it, both assurance and conviction are more subjective than are substance and evidence. Now there certainly is objective, uh, if you will, uh, elements in proper assurance. For instance, the assurance of salvation must rest on ultimately objective evidence. And conviction, which comes from the Spirit, must be uh, consistent with Scripture if it's going to be uh, indeed not spurious conviction. But the fact is that both of those terms involve a certain degree of personal response to external objective reality. They are more inward, whereas substance and evidence are more outward. And I think it's very significant that this great definition, I believe one of the greatest definitions of a crucial uh, element of the faith that's ever been given, has been watered down in that fashion. And so this, I believe, is another way we can see there's been this revolution uh, in the last hundred years especially where the entire emphasis, but for a few, thank God, a few exceptions that he has kept, for the most part the church has turned from an outward view to an inward view. And that's been reflected not only in its epistemology, which has become subjective and experiential, as opposed to objective and truth-centered, but it has also been expressed in the transition of worship from God and other-centered worship to a self-centered worship. Now, a couple of other loose things here, little tidbit ends. Uh, if you are interested in, and I don't have the luxury of the time here, but I think Horton uh, in that book, Made in America, one of the most interesting elements of it, at least for me personally, is the way he draws the historical daisy chain from pietism to ultimately unbelief. From pietism through the subjectivism of putting uh, one's experience over uh, reason and of course uh, the whole issue between revelation and reason is part of the problem again I don't have time to get into that but he makes the interesting statement which I think is worthy of thinking that today's pietists are tomorrow's liberals today's pietists are tomorrow's liberals and how many of the enemies of the gospels came from pietistic homes it's mind-boggling. 
And I think Immanuel Kant, that German philosopher, who did so much to destroy the confidence in objectively grounded Christianity, was himself the product of a pietistic home. And so he makes the point, page 109, he says that uh, liberalism and unbelief are not ultimately the result of too much thinking, but too little thinking. And the fact is that pietism, for all its regard for holiness, has in fact, as part of the anti-intellectualism of the Western world, encouraged less thinking and more experiencing. And one final tidbit I offer that in centuries past was unheard of, and that is the almost uncritically accepted, now a part of really enthusiastic congregational worship and life, and that's testimonies. And when you think about it, testimonies are irrefutable. You can't refute a testimony. No matter how mad it may be, you can refute the conclusions that people draw from it, and you can refute the use of testimonies in worship, but you can't refute a testimony because it's personal. It's just simply personal. And I believe testimonies, however wonderful, have no place in objective worship. Now, they certainly can have a place in personal uh, witnessing, but as far as worship itself, then uh, it is really another seemingly wonderful but ultimately corrosive erosion of that concentrated idea of worship, which I believe is very un-American. So I'd now like to run over uh, here uh, some uh, corrective thoughts uh, on the subject of worship, if you will, the recovery of worship. And I would like to propose one thought as we look at this, because after all, the real purpose of this is not just to do a great analytical review of everything that's wrong and then leave wringing our hands, because that's what, what uh, people like Alan Bloom do. They don't see that there's a solution. But before we talk about worship, I now want to, or the recovery of it, and some principles of recovery, I would like to propose that we need to pause for a minute and to think about the word itself, and I want to try to do this atypically, non-stereotypically. I want to try not to have jargon or cliches this time because this is so crucial. So I'm admitting to you this may be a somewhat seemingly unorthodox definition, but I believe the essence of it is profoundly orthodox. If you think differently, don't hesitate to say, and believe me, I have appreciated profoundly the comments of those of you that have come up over the previous two, or after the previous two classes. That's good, because we need each other, and I can't say everything with perfect precision. I believe the essence of worship, in terms of the intellectual and cognitive dynamics of worship, constitute that rarest, that rarest of experiences, to wit, in which we make a conscious decision not to think according to our own biases and preferences, or to think about ourselves, but to conscious, consciously concentrate on the thoughts and the substance of the thoughts of one with whom we have to do to wit God. That worship is very much the antithesis of individualism and experientialism and man-centered thinking. Think for a minute 
even this morning, where we weren't not we were not in a duly constituted service of worship in the formal sense, I would certainly hope we sang uh, those great hymns worshipfully. Now, when we sing a hymn, is it true that at that moment, from the time the piano starts playing until it ends, but especially after the introductory notes, you got the, you know, you sort of figured out where the tune is, so you don't have to agonize over the tune. Now I'm going to give a bad commercial. I think the New Trinity hymnal is wonderful hymns, but why did they have to mess up the tunes and put all these quirky ones? And those of you that are great musicians, attack afterwards, and I will uh, bear the brunt. But <laughs> the fact is that when I'm singing a hymn, I don't want to be in anguish trying to figure out the tune because I want to concentrate on the words. So we all get together and we stand up, hopefully, or sometimes to now. But anyway, at that point in time, do you realize that we are subordinating our personal prerogatives to do something in unison? In unison. Isn't that interesting? Not just the words we say, and you say them with a tune, and that's called singing, but if you're not just meandering all over the map on the inner man, you're actually thinking about what you say. And I believe it's wrong to be wool gathering and thinking other stuff when you're singing. You should be paying attention to singing because the emphasis on singing is to render back to God in a form and format that he himself has established as part and parcel of not only his will, but the way he put us together, the way he created us, the way he wired us up intellectually and spiritually and everything else. He says, this is something I want you to do together. And at that point, your individualism is virtually zilch in terms of the dynamic of what you're doing, what you and I are doing. Isn't that right? Now, let's press that just a little bit further. Here comes the real test, along with hymns. Hymns are a little easier because they don't last too long and you don't have to overwork that meandering men mental uh, garden of delights. You can you know, take about to three minutes and that's, you know, most of us can finish the hymn. Phew, it wasn't too long. But now comes the real test. Somebody gets up and he does something absolutely archaic. He reads a book that the latest chapter is over two thousand, nearly 2,000 years old. And then he says strange things that don't make any sense to worldly people. And we're supposed to think about that. That's, that's another way to describe a sermon. And, and we are supposed to give our attention to what this person is saying behind a funny-looking desk that we call a pulpit. And at that point in time, if you choose to do that, you are once again subordinating your own prerogatives, are you not? You're, you're taking time that you can't be used out gardening or reading your favorite novel or whatever because you're there and you're listening to this strange thing called a sermon as well as having sung praises and then somebody gets up and prays and generally it's the minister but not always and if you're praying with some kind of awareness of corporate prayer you're, you're following along and in your heart you're saying yay and amen to those petitions. And so you see, worship is the antithesis of what man normally does, which is fixate on himself. So, here then are some thoughts. If that definition of worship or that idea of worship makes some sense to you, and the first is a principle that you and I, if we are going to participate in that lost, in the recovery of that lost art of worship, 
we must conclude, we must believe that Scripture is sufficient to understand the world, to understand man, to understand God himself, and most of all, at this point, how to understand how to worship. Do we really believe that God tells us how to worship him? And let me just take you to a couple of texts here that uh, I hope will build on the John 4 text that we read yesterday when Jesus says the Father seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. They are, who are they? The ones who worship in spirit and in truth. And so, for instance, in John 17, and this is the great high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ before that terrible trial, and he is praying for the sheep. He's praying for his people. And as he prays for them, that they're in the world but not of it, and that uh, uh, God is going to now uh, not uh, uh, let them down, but to, to uh, maintain them. He prays in verse 17 one of the remarkable statements of Scripture. He prays that they may be sanctified in the truth. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And incidentally, if anybody ever says, what is truth? Just say, God's word. And if you don't answer that promptly, you're losing a real opportunity for an epistemological light to shine in probably a field of darkness. Now, sanctification, of course, means uh, in the uh, most uh, fundamental sense that growth in the grace and the knowledge and the holiness of the word uh, as uh, redeemed Christians as we move towards spiritual maturity. But you'll notice that the emphasis that Jesus Christ has for the development of the church is the truth. The truth. Isn't that a marvelous word? And remember what I told you that in the universities, uh, now uh, if you are a seeker after truth, that may still be a little bit fashionable, but if you say you found it, you will be despised because the belief is there is no truth. But you see, you and I have to say, au contraire, uh, more dear than life itself is the principle that there is truth and there's knowable truth. And so we have to, we have to be willing uh, to be jealous for that. And if Jesus Christ, just before the Garden of Gethsemane experience, could pray that, that says to me, and I would hope to you also, that was an incredibly important declarative propositional truth that he considered it important to lay before the Father in prayer. And isn't that interesting that he prayed a declaration? Uh, parenthesis, I think we do need to be careful about declarations in prayer. I suspect all of you have sat in church and sooner or later heard somebody get up and tell God all the things that God knows. I have a little difficulty with that. But anyway, that's a bit of a fashion that I hope dies. But in any case, uh, here Jesus Christ quite properly uh, reflects upon this central concept that there is truth. And it's a truth, furthermore, that does change people does change people. Now let's go over to John 8. And this is a text um, that I believe is one of the great epistemological texts of Scripture and one of the great texts for defining everything else that's involved in the Christian life. Uh, John 8, 
verses 31 and 32, first of all, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, and some may translate that, if you dwell in my word, then are you my disciples in truth. And then the literal Greek there is in truth. Uh, using the word aletheia. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now notice that he's talking, first of all, to believers. He is addressing believers, the Jews that believed in him. And then he makes it conditional. If you dwell in my word. So there's a rather clear clue uh, to all but the most insensitive that he has some kind of concern that there be some kind of an ongoing dwelling with the Word of God. It can't be the happenstance spasm of emotional interest you know, when we're in deep trouble and the rest of the time it gathers dust on the shelf. But uh, just as we dwell in a house, there needs to be a consistency there. And when he says that takes place, then that's a mark of true discipleship. So if you ever have somebody that's having a problem with assurance, uh, one of the ways, one of the evidences that you can point to uh, that they either are or not uh, in all probability redeemed is do they dwell in the Word? That's, that's an evidence. Now that was a little sidetrack, but uh, it's worth mentioning. And then he says, as a result of this, namely of being uh, true disciples because uh, you're dwelling in the Word as the, uh, one of the prima facie evidences of that true discipleness, uh, you're going to know the truth. You're going to know it. You really and truly, you're not just going to have a nice feeling about it, you're going to know it. And the truth, the truth will make you free. I believe, personally, that there are few people in the 20th century that have done more for the visible believing church on earth than J. Adams because I believe he is the guy who par excellence translated the presuppositional insights of Cornelius Van Til into a working into a working model in the visible church. And now I translate that into experience. After we've had been afflicted and inflicted and uh, contaminated with the terrible, bastardized, corrupted, satanic, hell-originated thinking of modern secular psychology and psychiatry and sociology and all, all those pseudosciences, Jay came along and he returned us to an incredible and powerful insight that the church really is an instrument of healing when it speaks the truth in love. And I believe that for me, one of the greatest encouragements as being a very imperfect minister in an imperfect world with imperfect people and all the rest of it, an imperfect understanding, is watching again and again the way that truth changes people. And that is so liberating for people counseling and not just professionals, but every believer should become a counselor. That's one of the intents of God. That as you speak the truth, the truth and the spirit using the truth is what changes people, not you. And see, if you tie that together with John 17, you begin to get something enormously powerful that here Jesus Christ has committed himself to building the church and his primary instrumentality is 
the repetition of, the passing on of, the explaining of, and the teaching of divine, capital T, truth. And then if you'll notice what he did in verse 37, which is, again, I personally find just fascinating. He then said, uh, let's try 36, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free in truth. Now, I want to really make, if I can't, something that I hope you won't accuse me of trivializing it, but I want to try to put it up visually to, to get some sense of the enormous impact of this. First, we erase this odious uh, designation for my hopeless deficit. And now we put up something much more enlightening. All right. He said, if you know the truth, that will make you free. Hmm? You have to know the truth, but the truth will make you free. See? Free how? Truth makes, that's an S there, you free. Now, he says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free in truth. Now, what I propose is if you put these together, you have is in essence an equation. Jesus Christ is saying that he is truth. John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If the Son, parentheses, the truth, makes you free, you're really free. How does the Son make you free? Through the truth. And then, if you think that isn't incredible and profound in what's like a three-dimensional equation... Look at John 1. Look at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, what Jesus was doing is saying to his hearers, I am inseparable from the Word of God. I am the Word incarnate. And if you would know me, you must know the truth. And if you know the truth, you will know me. And I believe that's a marvelous protection for us because then it helps us get out of the way. What do I mean by that? Well, I believe one of the most vivid expressions of that is in counseling, but another is in worship. That when you understand that, you realize it's not up to you to change the person. Isn't that marvelous? Because I personally, and I suspect the rest of you, couldn't bear that responsibility. That I have to manipulate somebody into insight. That I have to manipulate them into the uh, kingdom of God. I can't do that. I can't even get myself in on my own, much less somebody else. And so when I appreciate this, then what that does is that liberates me to concentrate on the truth and the proper 
communication of the truth because that is so powerful. And you see, really, when we admit this, we're admitting that epistemology is important. How do you know what you know? Well, ultimately, you've got to know truth or you're awash in a sea of relativity. But once you know truth, you're not floating like a leaf on a raging ocean wave. Suddenly you're on a rock. You're on the rock of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's a rock is because he is the originator of all truth and all truth reflects him. And any truth that doesn't reflect him is consistent with his word really isn't truth. It's pseudo-truth. And so in worship then, I've got to have confidence that the word is the truth that's going to tell me how to worship God the right way. Now, as a reflection of that, think for just a minute, and I want to go there later, but in Romans 1, where it gives that picture of how people move away from right worship, one of the things they always move away from is thinking about God as God defines himself to thinking about man as man likes to think about himself. Those are the two extremes. And I believe there's a real act of intellectual submission that in worship, if I understand, if you and I understand, that I don't want to think, and I would hope you don't want to think, a single thought about God that isn't true. And as you sit here this morning, do you want to think anything about God that isn't biblical? Do you want to even cherish that idea in a corner of your brain and let it kind of fester there like mold in bread? Now, the second thing I want to address by way of recovery is that our worship must be both in spirit and in truth. Now, I could take the whole rest of the week talking about what it means to be in spirit, but let me concentrate on just a couple of things Uh, that will really focus, I believe, one of the best evidences of it, particularly in terms of our, my opinion, not necessarily felt needs. Maybe we don't feel it at all, but I believe we demonstrate it all over the place. And that's the need for humility. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 18, first of all, and see again how there's a kind of a wheels within wheels here as as this gets so closely tied together. with the the principle of worship and the principle of attitude and the principle of truth. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told a parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. Now you see there's that man-centered thing, trusting in yourself. He was refuting the spirit of this age with this and that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. There's the arrogance issue. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Now, if you want a little interesting exercise, circle with lightly in pencil the number of times the pronoun I begins, uh, or uh, not just begins, but is there. Uh, Again, a little insight parenthesis. A lot of times I end up helping people with letters. Do you realize that most people today, with the training they get in the American public school system, begin nearly every sentence with I? I've had people on the ships give me letters that were 40 or 50 sentences, and over 95% began with the pronoun I. I don't think that's accidental. (laughs) 
Um, and the fact is that here is an enormous, in this parable, is an enormous self-interest. And this guy's got an ego the size of the good rich dirigible this Pharisee has. And he is announcing to God. Did you get that? He's announcing to God his excellencies. You see that? You know, this is, I love me, myself, and I. Oh God, I'm so good and I thank you that you're letting me worship you and bless you with this recitation of my accomplishments. Yucko. But look at the contrast, verse 13. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, if you care to do any exegetical work at all, you will see that his view of himself, both in the case of the Pharisee and the case of the tax gatherer, publican, was tied to either pride or humility, respectively. And you see, in today's climate, we have people not only telling us that it's not good to think about sin, but now I am going to pick on a specific name. Schuler has come out and specifically said that he considers one of the most pernicious evils of the church is any preaching about sin. And he considers the preaching about sin corrosive of that journey to complete and full self-esteem. And uh, Horton's book, again, has that, that uh, quote, literally, I'm not going to contaminate this hour by reading all its odious and unctuous egocentricity uh, to you, but you can read it there if you want it uh, to do that. But I think you ought to be aware of this. And then there's a guy uh, by the name of Kenneth. Uh, thank you. I, I said it in my, just the slippage. There it is, Lynn, slippage, just like those fire pumps. Just went right past the impeller. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth uh, Copeland is actually telling people now that they are gods and that they are actually divine and that they should revel and celebrate the worship of themselves. You see, that's the ultimate extreme of the heresy. And yes, you see here in the publican, he emphasizes the truth about his sin. Now, one other little thing, reactive stuff. Remember we talked about that? I personally am persuaded that one of the reasons so much of the pseudo-church today is so hostile to any preaching about sin, and sometimes I think we're timid about it even in the Reformed churches, is because in previous generations that was emphasized so intensely that there was virtually no hope. And that's also wrong. But when you decide to correct an overemphasis on sin by not talking about it at all, you have flopped from the right ditch to the left. And you're in as big a trouble as you were uh, when you were in the midst of that against which you've reacted. So I submit then that this is a call to a mindset that centers on truth but has an attitude that is defined by the truth beginning with a true understanding of how God himself sees us and how he expects us to respond to the truths about how he sees us. Uh, in Matthew, the beginning 
sermon of Christ's public ministry, uh, chapter 5, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, what's the very first thing Jesus addresses in his public ministry? Look at verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And good exegetes have quite properly pointed out that the poor in spirit means those who recognize their spiritual poverty, verse 3, and are, uh, verse 4, then drawn to repent. That's not mourning for lost loved ones, but mourning over their sinful condition. And you see, that, that has to be an inseparable element of right worship is that spirit of repentance, that spirit of humility, that spirit of understanding that but for the grace of God, uh, because of our sins, we're without hope. And then if you uh, are tempted to think that, well, uh, this is not something uh, that we should take too seriously, maybe this is uh, just a little momentary thing, this this issue of humility. Look at the coming of Christ and what in the Holy Spirit's wisdom was an element of truth that was proclaimed through none other than Christ's mother himself, herself as she spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you find that in Luke chapter 1 and two, two verses well worth noting. Uh, having said in verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He's Verse 51, Mary says, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. You see that even in the, the uh, marvelous events of the birth, the incarnation of Christ, the recognition this is the Messiah, that theme is there. And then over in uh, Corinthians, uh, for just a moment, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. If you'll notice uh, a passage uh, that uh, uh, I suspect most of us uh, recognize the minute uh, you turn there, this is the one we often use in the uh, institution and administration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, verse 29 and following, uh, he says, For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. And I submit that's a very interesting reflection then of that principle that even in the business of the uh, worship of God, and particularly in this case in the administration and receiving of the sacraments, it is to be done in a manner that God clearly himself has established. This is not to be an experiential, uh, free-form, uh, individual act, but it's to be a disciplining of ourselves so that we don't have to be disciplined by God for our undisciplined taking and partaking of that supper. And then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2, Paul says to his hearers, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. 
see that? Isn't that beautiful? He says, we haven't adulterated the Word of God. We haven't watered it down. We haven't diminished it. We haven't decided to only look at parts of it. Uh, it you're getting that full, rich, unwatered-down Word. And you see, if we leave out parts of the Word, that adulterates it by elimination. And then over in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verses 3 through 6, again, we get an in, just an intimation here of some of Paul's thinking on this crucial subject. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. This is 2 Corinthians 10:3. For the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, isn't that fascinating? That as we are liberated from the dominion of sin, we are brought into the glorious bondage of Jesus Christ. We are given the mind of Christ, the truth of God, the inscripturated word of truth is used by the Spirit to bring us through the exercise of saving faith and repentance unto life into a redemptive relationship with God. He then uses that word to sanctify us and to bring us to the place where we have the mind of Christ in such a disciplined way that literally every thought we think is a captive thought. It's come from Christ himself. Now that is the absolute pinnacle of self-denial, dying to self, living unto truth, and being people who really want their thought life to have the umbrella and rulership governing every thought. And I do not believe that the Scripture tells us that uh, there are certain things... Thank you. Uh, very good, I saw it. Uh, that there are certain things that... Uh, are just outside of God's purview, but most of all in worship, that every part of it is to be His. And then I submit, uh, this pushes us to still another uh, principle, and that is that the principal purpose of worship is to glorify God. To glorify God. And it is not, first of all, to make us feel good. And I deal with people a lot, and they did in the military, and still come across them, although not as often, who say, well, I went to such and such a church, and I say, well, what did you decide uh, is the basis on which you're going to go? And they say, well, what does the church do for me? What does the church do for me? Not, what does God call me to do for him? You see the incredible 180 there uh, into uh, the uh, worship of self. Uh, for a moment, over to Luke chapter 4. And notice... Uh, this again, I hope a familiar passage, that as Satan is tempting Christ to hand over everything to him, if Christ would just do something, it wouldn't have taken 30 seconds. Just 30 seconds. There would have been no war. It would have been all peace and light and sweetness and everything. Of course, no salvation either. We would all be in hell. But I mean, this world would not be a warfare if Christ had just been willing for, say, 30 to 60 seconds to have bowed down and worshipped Satan and so in Luke 4, we have the record of the devil's second temptation. Verse 6, or verse 5, 
he, that is Satan, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world at a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Incidentally, every one of those statements is a lie. You should realize that. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And look what Jesus answered. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only. And that's the same call that's given to us that was given centuries ago to Moses when he wrote uh, those great principles in the Pentateuch. And then I submit somewhere in the recovery of uh, a right understanding of worship, we need to commit ourselves to a given that God-centered, God-honoring, God-glorifying, theocentric, God-emphasizing, word-based worship is never going to be universally popular. And somewhere you just got to accept that. You've just got to simply accept it. I don't think it's worth wasting 30 milliseconds of time agonizing over the obvious. But if you think that's trivial, let me remind you that the whole movement in evangelical churches to make worship entertaining is to try to get people to like what is unlikable to the natural mind. You see, I cannot make true worship attractive to the man-centered man. That's like trying to make salt attractive to a leech. It's not going to happen. By the way, I learned the other day, this is a wonderful insight, I have to tell you this, that somebody that grew up in India told me this just last week, that they, they were in India the first five years, and a great big cobra came through the fence to the chicken yard, and he was so big he got stuck. And this man's mother ran out with a pot of boiling water, and she poured it on the cobra's head, and the cobra's head dissolved. And he said he saw it. And I said, Really? He says, yeah, it really happened. You know, there was the little backbone, but the head just dissolved in the boiling water. Now, that's, in case you don't want to think about theology, there's a little tidbit of um, something. To, so if, you, if, if you're a teenager and this has been agonizing, you go out and talk about dissolving cobra heads, and then you got something out of this. So the fact is, beloved, that you and I are to understand that worship separates the people of God from the people of the world. Now, in the next place, I want to point out to you that you and I must be willing to address every subject of Scripture, every subject that God requires as part of worship. And if you think back to experiences such as Isaiah, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, as he sees God, what is the first, absolutely the first reaction that he has and other Old Testament saints had and saints in the New, Peter, as, as he realizes who Jesus is, what's the first thing they do is they fall down, be merciful to me, a sinner. Peter says, depart from me because I have not enough good self-image. Is that what he says? No, he says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And there has to be in worship that ongoing recognition of our sinful estate because the glory of redemption is the glory of God's solution. And the minute you water down the teaching of the nature of man, you're into big, big trouble. 
You're into the trouble that redemption makes no sense. And so in the churches, like Schuler's and all those other horrid clones of that uh, bastardized pseudo-church model, you know, do this, and they emphasize man, Jesus isn't a redeemer anymore. He's a celestial, he's a, listen to this, he's a celestial therapist on the couch of life, helping you to reconcile your guilt feelings so that you can be comfortable accepting the real you and thus be liberated to fulfill your full potential as you define it. See, bad, 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 bad! And, beloved, that is not what God calls us to do in worship. And I'm even going to suggest that sometimes in worship, if it's proper, you're going to walk out feeling badly. Because you, please God, maybe got convicted of sin. Now, I'm not saying that has to be the norm, but I am saying there's something wrong if in worship you never are convicted, you're never smitten, your conscience is never uh, suddenly wounded as you realize in the preaching of the Word or some other aspect of it, just how much you and I need the grace of God and His forgiveness. Oh, beloved. So you and I then have to recognize that worship always involves the subordination of self. It always involves the subordination of self and the exaltation of God. And if that means at the expense of self, so be it. And if it means at the expense of family relationships, so be it. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword to set family members against one another. If it means the expense of the uh, respect of society, so be it. But that has got to be the center of any recovery of all this great heritage we're so blessed with. And if we're not willing to do that, I submit nothing else will happen. Let's take a break.